Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a very special Pride edition of the Rehumanized podcast. Uh, I'm Emiliano, and I'm joined by... I'm Herb. Herb Garrity. Hello. Um, And today we're going to be talking with Sarah Terzo from Playgal, the uh, pro-life alliance of gays and lesbians. Um, We're going to be talking about what it's like to be LGBTQ in the pro-life movement, um, what are some kind of specific insights that being LGBT uh, give us in this movement, some of the struggles, some of the blessings, um, and then also what Playgal is and uh, how it was formed. And uh, if you are an LGBT person in the pro-life movement, how you can get involved as well. Yeah. Or if you're an ally. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited. I actually also am on the board of Playgal, so I have worked very closely with Sarah and the entire uh, Playgal team. Um, and so I'm excited to talk to her. I'm excited to talk about Pride generally. Happy Pride Month to all of the Rehumanize followers. Uh, we we at Rehumanize, I think, often are, find ourselves in a weird place because we really only take a stance on issues of aggressive violence. So like we are anti-abortion, we are anti-death penalty, we are anti-war, we are anti-police brutality. Um, and I, I feel like as a result, I, I sort of feel like I have to be very careful about what I'm actually talking about. Uh, but I do have these outside opinions that are not necessarily um, part of the consistent life ethic proper. Um, and I think a lot of people within our movement feel that way. Um, and it leads to the consistent life ethic movement, as opposed to the the wider pro-life movement, um, being a little bit more inclusive uh, of people of different backgrounds. Like I think the fact that we tend to have a lot more atheist and secular people um, is indicative of that, as well as the fact that there just are a lot of LGBT people in the rehumanized family and in the the consistent life ethic movement uh, and community generally. So many, and we're all over the place. Yeah, we are. We're we're everywhere. There's also a lot of LGBT people not that don't hold a consistent life ethic and just are you know in the pro life movement. But I feel like I see a lot of what Playgal uh, ends up doing is like coming to the Rehumanized Conference. I know we've had Sarah Terzo representing Playgal there. I think almost every year that I have been involved in Rehumanize um, at our conference or another event that we hold speaking for Playgal. Um, And so Playgal and Rehumanize have always been very closely intertwined for as long as uh, Rehumanize has existed. Playgal is way older than us, but yeah, I'm excited to officially welcome them onto the podcast now by way of having Sarah join us. So we will now go to our interview with Sarah Terzo from the Pro-Life Alliance of Gays and Lesbians. And a gay time will be had by all. Welcome to the Rehumanized Podcast. Again, we already did the intro, but now we have a guest here. This is Sarah Terzo. Sarah works with the Pro-Life Alliance of Gays and Lesbians. She also works with Live Action and Consistent Life Network and probably a couple other ones. Secular uh, Pro-Life. Oh, and Secular Pro-Life. Yeah, Sarah is everywhere. If you've been to (laughs) a Consistent Life Ethic uh, conference or a Rehumanize event, the March for Life, pretty much any pro-life event right now. You guys can't see her, but she's wearing a pro-life women's conference t-shirt. <laughs> she's she's around. She's in the movement. Uh, you've probably heard of her, but if you haven't, I'm happy to introduce you all to Sarah Terzo. Well, thank you. That was very gracious. I appreciate it. Thank you yeah. for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. And it's, I mean, it's nice to see you over the uh, Zencaster line. Mm. Uh, I have been following your writing and your works for a long time since I was, you know, a pro-life baby, like in like high school and college. So I've really appreciated your angle and uh, your writings. You're kind of one of the first people that I read from kind of the intersection of like queer issues and uh, feminism and like pro-life angle. So this is, this well, is cool for me too. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So Sarah, this is our Pride Month special episode of the Rehumanized podcast. So I am very grateful that you are able to join us. Um, 
obviously I want to talk a little bit about the history of PlayGal. I know that we both are on the board, so we both can speak to that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I want to talk and ask a little bit about your perspective of what the Pro-Life Alliance of Gays and Lesbians is, where they've come from, what they do now, and what the future is. So start talking. Tell us a little bit about the LGBT pro-life movement. Well, Playgal has actually been around for a very long time. Um, they go way back and they've often been on the outs in the pro-life movement for a long time. We, we marched, actually, I marched with Playgal in the right March for Life in the 90s. I think it was 96. And they, we really had a good time, but we got a lot of, we didn't get a lot of like actual confrontation, but there were, there were a lot of signs, you know, queer, pro-life, proud and things like that. We were obvious that we had a Playgal banner, you know, we weren't quiet about the fact that we were an LGBT organization. And um, although we've always been open to having allies, there are plenty of allies in, in our organization. But um, we did get a lot of snide looks. And unfortunately, Nellie Gray, who was at the time the one who ran the March for Life, she passed away and now there's new people running it. Jean Mancini, I think, and I may be mispronouncing her name, but there are different people running it now who are more open. But she had actually said that if Playgal showed up and if we showed up with our sign, she would have us arrested. She was that adamant to keep LGBT friendly people out of the march. To her, being gay was basically evil and it was part of the decline in society, which she saw abortion as being part of. So she saw those issues as being very connected. She was not a single issue person and she did not see, I mean, I suppose she did oppose abortion because she believed it was the killing of children. And I, I don't want to put words in her mouth or assume I know what she believed, but she was very much, she was very religious. Not that you can't be religious and pro, you know, pro LGBT, but her religion was very strict that anything that was not, you know, Christian conservative was evil. So she did not want us in the march. She did not want us marching. There was even some talk that we were going to go and just wear pink armbands to, to make, to show, you know, as a subtle way to show who we were. And even that was not allowed. So we were not we were not meant to be part of the march in fact she even had a hard time with feminists for life being there um i think in the end they were allowed to march but she did not want them even with their signs so she was a very extreme conservative now several people from Playgal did show up anyway and i believe they were um I don't know too much about it, so I don't want to speak to something I don't know. But yeah, I, I know. Do, I, I know do remember. No, yeah, go ahead. One year, the leaders were of Playgal were forcibly removed by mm. the um, the police, like work, working on behalf of the March for Life. You know, they they had the permit, and so the police were were listening to them. Um, and the Playgal marchers with their banner were forcibly removed. And I believe a few leaders were actually arrested because mm. they refused to, um, to just listen and leave the, the yeah. march. Um, and then, the, so that, that was horrible. It was um, horrible. And, and it was not, obviously there was a lot of tension there and, and definitely yeah, complete exactly. rejection, complete rejection of, of the LGBT group, mm -hmm. which is hard to understand when you, you would think that they would want everyone to fight abortion. Like it's, it's very confusing to me that some pro-lifers don't want non-traditional pro-lifers in the movement. I mean, if the purpose is to save the lives of babies and put in legal protections for the unborn, you would think that they'd want everyone. Yeah. You would think they'd want everyone. I mean, it's sort of like, and I use this analogy when I speak, I, I did a speech on um, diversity in the pro-life movement for a rehumanized conference. I was a media consistent life conference. I don't remember. But anyway, I said, you know, if you were a firefighter and there was a child trapped in a burning building, would you tell another firefighter who was gay or who was liberal or who was feminist, stay outside and don't go in and rescue that child? Mm -hmm. Like, where is the logic in that? It doesn't make any sense to me. And it makes me wonder, you know, what is their agenda? What is their goal? Because if it's really saving babies, and I guess it is. I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to assume motives, but like it's not consistent and it's not logical. So it makes me wonder what, what exactly they're trying to accomplish. I think this, but, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think this really highlights like the, the difficulties and the tensions mm -hmm. that are there when you're trying to work uh, both for this issue of of protecting unborn people but also showing that there is there's a space for you as a queer person in in the movement as well and that also like that we bring a, a specific perspective that is something that's necessary in the broader pro-life movement as well so how did you how did Playgall kind of go through those growing pains now because now Playgal does openly march at the March for Life, right? Yeah. 
Well, so it was a slow process, I know, because I've been told both by some of the leaders in Playgal, but also by Father Frank Pavone, um, what happened the year after Playgal was forcibly removed from the March for Life and some leaders were arrested that uh, the next year they said that, you know, they worked with the March for Life organizers and said, please let us march. We were on the same team. We just want to advocate for, you know, the rights of the unborn. Um, And the March for Life came to an agreement with them and said, fine, you guys can march, but you can't have any any imagery or anything related to being gay, no promotion of it, no identification openly with any anything LGBT. Um, and so that next year, because Playgal has always had big, beautiful banners with rainbows mm-hmm. on it and their logo with the, the unborn child and the pink triangle um, and human rights start when human life begins, like big, big, beautiful banners. The next year they marched with uh, that same banner that they had the year before, but on top of the words gay and lesbian and on top of the pink triangle and all the rainbows, they had big red, like censored <laughs> stuck on the banner. And there's actually a picture. It's one of my favorite, like historical pro-life pictures. It's the Playgal marchers at the March for Life. Um, I think it's, this is on the Playgal Facebook page, so you can find it. Um marching with the banner and in front of it is father frank pavone like current you know right-wing conservative Mm -hmm. traditional pro-life priest um standing in front of it smiling big um and he has told me about that moment uh when i told him that i was getting involved in playgal and he was like i just think that's so great i'm so happy that the pro-life movement uh is is becoming more welcoming because we need everyone on board Mm -hmm. um and so it is it 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 has evolved, you know, every year it's a little bit, it's a little bit closer to being uh, mainstream. And I think now mm-hmm. it pretty much is yeah. completely acceptable mm-hmm. in most circles of the pro-life mm-hmm. movement to be openly LGBT in some way. I'm not sure if I would honestly say that. That seems a little, I mean, it's, it's true that among the younger people, there is definitely acceptance, That's but true. I am involved in a lot of pro-life groups on Facebook, or perhaps I should say I was, and I've been run out of several of them because I've, po- because I've objected, not, not that I've even posted anything or argued anything about, or, or even said that I was LGBT, but because I objected to posts where they were bashing LGBTs or calling mm-hmm. for, or more likely transphobia. There's a lot of mm-hmm. transphobia going on in a lot of these groups, you know, they post about things and then encourage us to make phone calls and stuff to advocate against trans people. And, you know, there was a lot of posts about there was that issue, that um, court case where the mother was there was a trans child and the there was a divorce and the father wanted the child to be raised as a boy. And the mother was saying, no, she's trans and, you know, we should allow her to you know, pursue that. And, and there was a conflict and there were a lot of posts on a lot of the pro-life groups about how we needed to support the father and how horrific this was. And I objected to those posts and I said, you know, and I didn't even argue it. I just said, you know, this is not a pro-life issue. This should not be here. There are those of us who support the mother and, you know, we shouldn't, you sh- this should not be part of our pro-life advocacy. And it was not well received. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe I was kicked out of any groups, but I was so much attacked that I did leave some of the groups. It didn't seem worth it to stay. Um, So there is definitely still homophobia and transphobia in the pro-life movement. The good news is there's a lot of up and coming groups like Rehumanize International where that is not the case. Rehumanize International is huge. you, we did not have anything like that when I was in college or even after college, that was a consistent life group. There was consistent life network, but it was, it was very different back then because there was Playgal, but there wasn't much of a home for LGBT people in the movement except for Playgal. Now it's very different. There were a lot of quarters where it is accepted and we are not on the outs. And it's a completely transformed movement. I can't even tell you how different it was in the 90s when I was in college and I was coming up. I was actually in the closet then. And I was terrified of getting out of the closet. I actually didn't come out until I was in my 30s, which is very late. And that was there were a lot of complicated reasons for that. But, you know, it was I was really hiding. But I often felt very uncomfortable in these spaces because there was a lot of anti LGBT rhetoric. And I was obvious I was out as an ally, but I was not admitting to who I was. And it always stung. It was always difficult. 
Um, and it was always, it was always hard and I always had to brace myself. And fortunately I did have a home. There was a listserv. I don't know if any of you, this is probably before your time, but before Facebook and Yahoo groups and all those things, there were uh, mailing lists and it was, you would get emails from a group of people. People would sign onto the mailing list and you would get emails. Well, there was one called left out and it was a very LGBT supportive group. It was basically made of pro-lifers who felt left out in the mainstream pro-life movement. And I got a tremendous amount of support from that group. There were a lot of people from Plague Al on it. Um, there were people from other groups on it. And also a lot of people who weren't affiliated with groups, but who were pro-life. Jen Roth was on it. She now runs a group. Um, believe it or not, Steve Vertelt was on it, who does live Life News now. Uh, Bill was on it from Consistent Life, um, who was the president. He was the president of Consistent Life, not at the time, but he later became the president. Um, a number of other people were on it. Rachel McNair was on it, who is now the vice president of Consistent Life. And she was at the time fem with Feminists for Life, the vice president there. So there were a lot. Sally Wynn, who went on to be the vice uh, vice president of Consistent, uh, not Consistent, of, sec of uh, Face Feminists for Life, sorry. And um, so there were a lot of people who, who were up and coming in the movement. And we were all much younger than most of us. Um, but we were a very supportive group for one another. And that really got me through a lot of it, that I always had a place where I felt safe. And um, I was not officially on the board of Plague Out at the time, but I was involved with them. And it was a, it was a safe place. And it was, it was a huge emotional support. It really made it possible, I think, for me to be involved so heavily in the pro-life movement because there was a safe place that I could go where I could say, oh, they're at it again. And they could say, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I got, you know, we were able to talk to each other about how, <laughs> you know, how, how difficult it was. And it was, it was just, it really, it really helped. Mm -hmm. And that was a great, or that was a great um, group of people. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you said that you also think that today that the Rehumanize events are similar to that. Um, yes, definitely. I think that's always interesting for me um, because as you know, Rehumanize International doesn't necessarily take a stance on LGBT issues. You know, we right. I said this in the intro, but you know, we oppose abortion, we oppose the death penalty, we oppose war. Um, but I, you know, Rehumanize proper does not have a position on gay marriage or on, you know, transgenderism uh, mm. or, or anything like that. Uh, we simply just welcome everyone. Um, and, and that also means, you know, we welcome people with conservative sexual ethics or traditional religious beliefs that uh, I might personally disagree with mm. uh, outside of, you know, our opinions about abortion or anything else. And I think that the fact that that neutrality on LGBT people and also the fact that we're secular, um, you know, we are we are neutral on whether or not you are mm. an atheist or a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever um, has been, I think, so shocking that like as a result, people are like, oh, well, you're pro LGBT mm. um, just right. because you do not bash LGBT people or that we are very open about the fact that we have uh, team members and volunteers and, uh, you know, community leaders within Rehumanize that are LGBT and they're open about it. And um, it's not necessarily, we're not advocating for LGBT issues outside of opposition to violence against LGBT mm -hmm. people. Um, but that that is sort of the, the bar that we're that we're one of the one of the like more LGBT positive groups just mm. because we're neutral on it. Right. It is true. Yeah. Um, I, and I, don't I, think I, I was just saying in, in my very skewed knowledge of the pro-life movement, because I've only like really been involved um, through consistent life ethic groups. Mm -hmm. I would say like the vast majority of people that I know in the pro-life movement are queer. Like, mm. I think like in the consistent life ethic movement, like definitely that is definitely the case. And I, I think like when I was talking about, you know, our unique perspectives as queer people that we bring to the pro-life movement, I think that's one of the, uh, one of the things that one of the perspectives that we bring, because we have had the experience of not really being comfortable in whatever space. So we're like, okay, well, I'm not going to be, you know, there's no, there's not going to be a comfy space for me. So I might as well show up and, uh, you know, fight for my right to exist. But then the common goal that we have, uh, even if you don't like me, you know? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's more to be said, too, on the perspective of LGBT um, pro-lifers, because it reminds me of an interview I did for an article. um, I published it in Secular Pro-Life, and it was an interview with a young um, pro, young LGBT man. He was gay and he was um, very pro-life and he he grew up in the Philippines. And the main reason he became pro-life is that he recognized that there are many, he was pro-choice, but he recognized there were many places where being gay was enough to make you a non-human and make you, and give the death penalty. You know, he has an international perspective and there are countries where you can be executed for being LGBT. That's Mm -hmm. not the case here, obviously, but there are certainly areas, parts of the world where your life is not valued if you are LGBT and you are not considered a person in the same sense. I mean, you're not considered, maybe you're not dehumanized to the extent that the preborn are, but you're not considered a valid person with rights and, and, you know, um, the same humanity as a straight person. And that connection was made by him. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm a person who is not always shown that, or I might not be shown that, um, given that humanity in some places and the preborn is not, are not given humanity. And he saw a camaraderie between himself and preborn children. And that is why he became Mm pro-life. So, I mean, it's very true that we're people and, you know, we don't get it as much in the U S but you know, there's enough bad stuff going on in the U S but it's not like other countries. You can actually be executed for being gay, Mm -hmm. but from a global perspective, you know, there are many places where LGBT people are not given their rights to even live. The right to live is taken away from us. And just like the right to life is being taken away from the preborn. So mm-hmm. there is that connection. And there's also the connection of the knowledge among a lot of LGBT people that if they do discover a gene that causes a person to be gay, that gene, yep. that you know, screening, that fetal screening, many people will abort because they don't want a gay child. I mean, look at how many people kick their LGBT children out of the house or disown them once they once they tell them that they're LGBT. If you're going to disown your child and reject them over that, why would you not reject them in the womb? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's <clears throat> it seems clear to me that that is an area that that gay people and lesbians and by all of us, all LGBT should be concerned about because if they ever do, and most of us do believe that we were are are being queer was not something that, you know, we just chose or anything, you know, that's a very common thing that people think, oh, you just chose to be gay. Well, no, we were, we were born gay. We were conceived gay or, or LGBT. So it's not, all of us really believe just about, I've never met an LGBT person who didn't believe that it was inherent. So it's, if there is, maybe there is, maybe there's some, I haven't met one, but maybe there's some. I I, I have a, I have a, more conscious. I think it's more. All right. I'm sorry. It's I'm a sorry. combination of nature and nurture. Well, it could be. It could be. But but and anyway, think, there are. I, I think particularly what I'm very interested in is uh, the science related to the existence of transgender people, and particularly like what causes someone to have gender dysphoria later in life. Mm. Um, because obviously, when you're a fetus, you're not really experiencing anything like that. Um, right. But as uh, so, some research has indicated that likely similar to later in life, same sex attraction, um, gender dysphoria, it's possible could be caused by, uh, certain hormones that mm. basically the fetus gets washed with while, I've heard uh, that too. while in the womb. Um, and that, that's been a theory for, you know, for why people end up gay, um, as well. And I think that, uh, uh, and who knows, you know, I'm, I'm not, right, saying this, right. I'm not doing this research. I, th- I think my, my beliefs, and this is like my personal stuff, rehumanized, mm-hmm. obviously doesn't really take a stance yeah, on yeah. that, but, um, that it's probably some combination of genetics and hormones and nature and nurture and mm-hmm. the society you grow up in. And it's probably a whole bunch of things. Um, but I think that it is possible. Like, I don't think it's some kind of like sci-fi thought experiment to say there could be some sort of gene or test that can get developed that later in pregnancy we can say hey this child when they grow up they're going to either have same-sex attraction or potentially have gender dysphoria which could lead them to choose to transition and then they would be a trans person um and yeah i think exactly what you've said there are people who would abort a child for that reason you know i think that it is it is obvious to me i probably know people who mm. would choose to have an abortion if their mm. child was lgbt in some way uh and i think that the mainstream lgbt rights and advocacy organizations 
all of them are pro-abortion. You know, when you look at the uh, like human rights campaign and basically every pro-LGBT group in this country, they're all, you know, funding Democrats for office who will, you know, advocate for late-term abortion with no restrictions. They actively support Planned Parenthood. Uh, Planned Parenthood obviously has gone out of their way so much to say, we're welcoming to the LGBT community. We have all this, you know, HIV testing for you know, LGBT people, we offer hormone, hormone replacement therapy for transgender people. Uh, you know, they, they really areas, lots of times they're like the only place that mm. is available for any, like yeah. any type of LGBT care. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also is sometimes the only place that LGBT people will feel safe in if they have, you know, a reproductive health need. And I think that that is just so horrific that, mm. you know, we as a movement of people who, you know, should care about every human life have just sort of in some ways abandoned a giant population of people to Planned Parenthood, you know? Well, and yeah. also, like, I don't think we have to get like to speculate too much on the uh, issue of like the gauging or whatever, because we already know that there are discriminatory abortions for other like right. uh, oppressed classes of people mm -hmm. like women. Down syndrome. Yeah. Disabled people um, like girl children are disproportionately um, aborted. We know we know that societal discriminations don't end at the womb. Yeah. And right. so that's a, a big topic, I think, like in the 90s when gene therapy was just kind of starting to be discussed. But I don't see why that's something that we have to, yeah, like even say that that's science fiction because I, no, it's not. And they're mapping the human genome as we speak and they will find more more things that they can screen for. They may yeah. eventually screen for bipolar, which I have. They may eventually screen for rheumatoid arthritis, which I have. There are already people aborting spina bifida babies. Now, I'm a wheelchair user. I, I don't know if anyone in the audience knows that, but I, I am managed to get around my house with a walker, but I, I am disabled physically. And there are people aborting children with spina bifida who, have, who are also in wheelchairs or would be in a wheelchair if they were allowed to live or would need a walker. So there are people who would look at my life and say, well, my baby is going to be like that and their life is not going to be worth living. Mm -hmm. So certainly that's a very personal issue for me. I don't have the exact diagnosis of someone who would be aborted, although yet I should say, but you know, it's still very, you know, very, again, I don't, I don't really know how to express it. It's such a, such an emotional thing to know that there are people who would abort someone like me just because they would feel either they don't want to be burdened with a child who would have a disability or because they truly believe that child will not have a good quality of life. Um, which also gets into euthanasia, which I won't get into, but that's a whole other issue of people assuming uh, disabled people don't have a good quality of life, that our lives are not valued. That's a whole other topic that we could do another podcast on. Well, and LGBT but, people have just are statistically more likely to have uh, either physical or mental disabilities as well. So, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, we have an intersection between the LGBT community and the disabilities mm -hmm. community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that... When we talk about these things, I mean, you know, we're obviously talking about abortion, which is just inherently a negative, uh, negative issue. It's not something that it's fun to talk about or think about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think particularly when we're talking about it from this perspective of um, discriminatory abortions, you know, I think, you know, it is the modern reality for a lot of people with disabilities to have to know that, yeah, most people, you know, we're, we're over 50% on many uh, disabilities that people will say, okay, I will have an abortion. Um, the majority of the time for Down syndrome, it's even higher. We all know in Iceland, they've they say they've eliminated Down syndrome um, because they've really the, eliminated all the people with Down syndrome. Yeah, precisely um, through selective abortions. Um, and it's like I think secular pro-life has a campaign where they when, when they see that kind of rhetoric um, or people saying, you know, abortion needs to be legal because what if a child has X condition, you know, um, what, whatever it is, if it's a disability, 
um, they say, listen, the people with disabilities can hear you or even poor children can hear you. People who Mm. were in foster care can hear you when you're advocating saying, well, we need the right to kill certain people because their lives are just so not worth living or even worse that there's such a burden on their Mm. parents or a burden on society. Um, And so when I think about this, you know, still hypothetical issue of if we could screen for an LGBT child, it is really, you know, upsetting and emotional for me to think that so many people in my life who I love could have been screened out or potentially one day will be screened out. Um, And that the mainstream LGBT rights movement that I would like to support, I would like to be a part of as, you know, an ally and member of the LGBT community, I feel like I can't support because they mm. are completely on board with abortion. And I, I really want to know, I want to question them. If that test becomes available, where will you stand? Right. You know, right. will you, will you still think it's a woman's right to choose to kill their gay child or their trans yeah. child or their potentially one day will grow up to choose a transition child because right. you can't really be a I mean, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to think that they would change their stand on abortion. But as we know, feminist groups yeah. don't oppose sex selection abortions. I mean, some do, but most mainstream feminist groups, they do not um, advocate against sex selective abortion. They don't really know how to handle that issue because in, on the one hand, it's a clear discrimination against women, but it compromises their pro-choice stand and the pro-choice stand wins out. Their, their support for abortion is what wins and they don't talk about it or they actually advocate against laws that would protect babies that are female in the womb, which is shocking to me. But it's sort of like when they have these two values, either defend women from death or support abortion, supporting abortion wins. And that's a very sad thing. And like, I really don't know if that would be the case with the LGBT mainstream groups, too. I, I hope it wouldn't be. But I really don't know. There seems to be a way where, you know, support for legal abortion kind of distorts, you know, what you would even think would be supporting human rights in some cases. And I wonder how much of that is people who have had abortions and cannot admit, you know, they they feel that they have to justify it because of that. There are so many people in our country who have either had abortions or paid for an abortion or supported someone who had an abortion or loved someone who had an abortion and don't realize how how kind and open we are to post-abortive women and, and post-abortive men and post-abortive anyone and don't realize that you can be post-abortive and still oppose abortion. But, you know, there's a lot of that's something we have to work against as pro-lifers is the justification that people have because it's so painful to admit that you lost your child to abortion and that you had a hand in that. You've lost a child, but there's also the guilt that you were part of losing that child, that you made that choice. And that's a terribly painful thing to come to terms with. So that works against the pro-life movement. And it's one reason why we always have to be kind and accepting and never judgmental to post-abortive people who really you know, they could have been in a terrible situation. We don't know. They may not have the knowledge we did about fetal development. You know, you cannot possibly judge a person who's been in that situation. And, you know, I, I mean, again, this is getting off the topic, but I think that that may be behind some of the difficulty that some groups have in seeing the connection between abortion and, you know, killing women, killing babies in the womb. Because if you admit that it's killing women, you know, girl babies in the womb, you have to admit that the abortion you had or the abortion you paid for was also killing a baby in the womb. And that's a tremendously hard thing to do. Yeah. And they may not realize that we don't judge them. You know, that's one thing that's very sad is that I feel like I've lost friendships of people who may have had abortions or have people who may have had abortions that don't don't seek out my friendship because they assume I would be judgmental, which is not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a delicate issue and a difficult issue. Yeah. I mean, I feel like some of the most uh, persuasive uh, as well as just interesting and kind and um, wonderful advocates against abortion and advocates for life are post-abortive women and people in general, um, including fathers who have lost children um, from their partner's abortion. I, I feel like those voices are so important to say, listen, hey, I have, I regret this decision or I mourn this decision or I um, have even just these complex feelings about this decision. 
uh, are so important to just let them air that out mm. and welcome them regardless of what, yeah. what their feelings are. Uh, because we need people to see that we're not here. You know, I'm not, I'm not anti-abortion because I want to find like another reason to put more women in jail who were right. in difficult decisions. Like that's not what I'm advocating. That's not, that's not the policies I even support. Uh, and that's not the attitude I come at this issue with. I think that a lot of people, um, including, you know, what we would call the the mainstream traditional pro-life movement that even is a little bit more conservative than some of the consistent life ethic groups are, you know, we all just want to create a better world for women and children. And we don't mm. want to have to, to pit them against each other. Um, you know, I think that that is what abortion is. It's saying, you know, this child is a problem um, and let's get rid of them instead of looking at the bigger picture and saying, okay, you have all of these problems in your life that are causing you to think this child is a problem, whether it's, you know, your workplace or your lack of housing or your lack of, you know, a sustainable way to feed your other living children. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what I see from the pro-life movement is trying to actually go into those situations and say, well, what, what can we do to make, make you feel like you don't need to get an abortion? Um, there's also another level of, well, we also need the laws to back that up because there will still uh, be elective abortions, even if all those problems are solved. But most abortions we know are usually issues of either poverty or uh, workplace discrimination or you know, things that are thing, problems that are solvable without violence is what I'm well, trying to say. Consistently in two different um, studies that were done, over 70 percent of women who had abortions said that one of the reasons they had them was lack of finances to take care mm -hmm. of a baby. And there was another book that came out recently um, of someone who it was about crisis uh, pregnancy resource centers, also called crisis pregnancy centers, where the woman did um, interviews of women who had abortions and found out that of the women who aborted partly because or solely because they did not have money to support the baby, 22% said they would have had the baby had they had that support. Now, 22% is not the majority, but it's still a large portion of women and those lives should be saved. Mm -hmm. I mean, those lives could be saved. It's so sad that a woman would abort because she doesn't have the resources to feed her other children. That shouldn't happen in our country. Mm -hmm. We don't have a poor country. We're not a third world country. We're not a country that does not have the money to support women who are poor. And families that are poor and all the money we spend on defense, if a poor, if a tiny fraction of that money was spent to help poor families and poor single mothers, we would not have the abortion rate that we have now. It's very frustrating that I really think most pro-lifers do see that. The problem is the pro-life movement has become associated with the Republican Party and with conservatives who mm -hmm. do not see that or do not care or do not feel that that is a way to spend money. And I don't believe it's the rank and file of pro-lifers who believe that, but because the only pro-life party is the conservative party, we as a pro-life movement, not me personally, but many people in the pro-life movement support support politicians who support policies that only further hurt, you know, poor families and poor women and poor children. Mm -hmm. And that's a serious problem. And I really think that that would not be the choice of most pro-life people. And I say that because many pro-life people are involved in actively helping these women through crisis pregnancy centers. I, I don't believe that most pro-lifers would begrudge a poor family help. I really think it's more the fact that we're aligned with the Republican Party, which and, and we kind of don't really have a choice. I mean, I don't vote Republican. I don't vote. I, don't, I vote third party. But many pro-lifers and I can't really argue with this. They believe that it's important. They're single issue voters. They want to stop abortion. So they feel they need to vote Republican. And I can't judge that. I don't I don't do it. But it's hard for me to judge because I do see that it's you can't really vote Democrat if you truly value. I mean, I know there are people who do vote Democrat and I respect that, too. I don't judge that either. But supporting a party with your vote, you know, is that that supports abortion and would expand access to abortion. I see that that's a moral a moral problem. That there's a problem with that. So it's hard for me to judge those who do vote for these policies. But it is a problem. And yeah. I really wish we could have more bipartisan support. That's why groups like Democrats for Life are so important. And there are wonderful, I mean, Katrina Jackson is a good example of a Democrat who supports, you know, programs to help the poor, but also supports uh, pro-life. There are politicians who are out there fighting for these things and, you know, we really need to support them. And I hope for a world where more people, more pro-life politicians do see the need 
to to help poor people and poor families because I really do believe that would cut the abortion rate. And again, this is off topic, but. I think it's important. You know. I mean, you're not just here to talk about the gay and lesbian part of play. Right. The pro-life alliance is also. <laughs> I mean, I well, do a- think that uh, we've had an interesting discussion, basically, of like um, <laughs> all the places where we get excluded. Um, so we talked about how we're excluded or have been excluded historically from large portions of the pro-life movement. We are excluded from large portions of the LGBT rights movement, um, right. because of being pro-life. Um, and I, I said this on the run pro-life episode a couple months ago that sometimes I definitely, uh, had more like anger directed against me as a, a pro-life politician um, from the uh, kind of liberal college professor uh, type in in my town for being pro-life than the conservatives directed at me for being gay, mm-hmm. um, which is I think maybe just kind of like an interesting historical tidbit right yeah. now. I don't know. Um, I too have gotten condemnation from both sides. I think most of us have. Yeah. So, okay. um, We've talked about how, you know, the travails of trying to march in the March for Life as a a gay organization. What about um, trying to march at Prides as a pro-life organization? Has there been kind of respect for... uh, of Playgal's place within the LGBT community or like in the women's march in 2017, I think um, Feminist for Life got removed. Yes, it was New Wave Feminist actually. Yes, New Wave Feminist Feminist was taken out of, they were sponsor. They were sponsor and they were kicked Mm -hmm. out. And it was sad that they were, but it actually got the group a lot of attention on the media, which was actually good because people had never heard of them. And suddenly they're like, oh, this is a feminist group that that opposes abortion. Gee, there are feminists that oppose abortion. You know, it got into a wider audience. So whatever the organizers of the march had wanted to do (laughs) by kicking them out was really undone by the fact that she was on uh, that Destiny uh, De La Rosa was on so many talk shows and on TV and able to promote their message to a wider audience which probably wouldn't have been the case had they not kicked them out. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it backfired on the people who wanted to silence them and erase them right. because it did the opposite. But yes, but, um, yeah, there so is. How, how is it like trying to go into a Pride event or an LGBT event like as a pro-life organization? That's a little hard for me to answer because I haven't actually personally been involved in that. I know there are many people in play. Go- okay, well, maybe you should speak to it, Herb. I've, I've done it a little. I. Uh, uh, twice, I think I've I've tabled at Pittsburgh Pride and I think Youngstown Pride um, for Playgal uh, in my capacity as a board member. And uh, you know, it's complicated because Emiliano, like you've said, you faced a lot of uh, vitriol for being um, pro life from you know LGBT affirming people. Uh, and I feel like I've got I've gotten that a little bit too. Uh, very often online, um, mm. you know, I think that people will be very upset. I know that when I was in college, um, I was somewhat involved in my LGBT group there, I guess, um, and campus campus group. Uh, and I remember I was also involved in the College Republicans, and we invited an LGBT speaker uh, who was conservative and pro-life. Um, and I tried to post about it in the LGBT group, and it was taken down and said, "Nope, you can't, you can't post about this event." And I was like, "But it's an LGBT speaker." Uh, but whatever. Uh, so I, I've gotten a little bit of backlash too, but again, mostly online. Um, and in person, when I have tabled actually at the at Pride events um, and handed out literature, we have beautiful rainbow playgal brochures that basically put forward the playgal argument: human rights start when human life begins. Uh, LGBT people should be, you know, present in the pro-life movement, and pro-life people should be present in the LGBT rights movement. Um, we had fetal development facts. We had a bunch of beautiful stuff on the table, and honestly. I felt pretty welcomed there. I think mm. that uh, 
Of course, anytime you table with pro-life literature, uh, which I do somewhat frequently, you get screamed at. Uh, people get upset. Uh, I think that abortion is a very personal issue for people. I think that there is trauma involved, um, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, and that can lead to uh, hostile situations. And so, of course, I've gotten yelled at. Um, but more than that, I've had people come up and, you know, take a take a pro-life button or, you know, a rainbow LGBT pro-life button um, and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize there were other pro-life mm. pro LGBT people um, or, oh, I'm gay. And like we just had this child. It was so difficult for us. And we're so happy that you're here representing this. Um, and so I think that it's similar to how the the pro-life movement and I'm using air quotes for the podcast listeners that can't see me. Um, but this kind of like mainstream, what you might envision as the leaders of the movement and, you know, maybe them being all Republicans or super conservative, including maybe anti LGBT, um, how that doesn't actually represent the grassroots pro-life community. You know, we see the people who actually run the pregnancy centers and the people who, uh, go to the March for life. They're people like us. There's also plenty of people who are, um, not necessarily uh, share a lot of views with me, but they're, you know, it's, it's a diverse group. That's also true of LGBT people. You know, there are, there are conservative LGBT people. There are Christian LGBT people. There are pro-life LGBT people. There are LGBT people who don't necessarily embrace like what people think of as like gay or transgender ideology. Um, you know, there, there's a diversity opinion of opinion, among LGBT people that includes a lot of pro-life people. And that is what I saw. I, I also saw a lot of people who were just interested in hearing what we had to say, or maybe thought it was kind of crazy that we were, uh, that we were a pro-life group, um, that was willing to table at pride. Um, and I know that we had very productive conversations at those events. Um, at the one in Youngstown, I remember I was with our other uh our other sarah on the play gal board um sarah m and uh she i think she actually is from youngstown and she had a lot of really productive conversations with pro-choice people um and was able to just kind of represent the pro-life movement um and i i think even when someone leaves a conversation and they're not necessarily like, oh, okay, now I'm going to advocate to make abortion illegal. I'm on your side mm -hmm. completely. I think just being present and showing, hey, I'm a pro-life person and I'm like you in some way, whether that is being part of this shared LGBT community or, you know, maybe I'm a member of Democrats for Life or I uh, am some other shared identity with you um, allows people to think, huh, I can do that too. Then I, mm. I don't have to just say, well, because I'm an atheist or because I uh, am gay or because I support LGBT people that I have to be pro-abortion or pro-choice that there's space for you in the pro-life movement. And honestly, even if they don't go that far, they walk away with a different understanding of the pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. I really believe there are some people who are pro-choice who haven't really thought through the issue. Um, and they feel that that's part of their identity to be pro-choice because they're Democrat, Democrat, because they're LGBT. That's part of the ideology, they think. And also they have a stereotype of the pro-life movement as being extremely anti-LGBT, extremely you know conservative. They have a caricature in their mind of what a pro-life person is. And when they meet a pro-life person who does not fit those categories, it opens their mind to the pro-life argument in a way that maybe they were not open to before because it's an us versus them thing. And I see that among a lot of atheists. They oppose abortion because they see fundamentalist Christians that, that excuse me, they, excuse me, got that backwards. They, they support abortion because they see a lot of fundamentalist Christians who oppose abortion. So to them, it's sort of like, well, if they support it, we must, if they oppose it, we must support it. So it's kind of an us versus them thing. And when they see people who break that mold, gee, maybe there's something to these arguments after all. You know, mm -hmm. gee, maybe I should actually look at this issue. Gee, maybe it isn't just something I shouldn't believe in in a knee-jerk reaction. You know, I really feel it opens them up to pro-life arguments. Maybe not in that conversation, but maybe in a future conversation. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. But I feel that it kind of breaks the us versus them dichotomy where they're rejecting the arguments because they feel it's not what they should believe in. There was a book that came out recently that discussed that. It was called Abortion Politics. And it discussed how many people hold pro-choice beliefs. And it also included pro-life 
life beliefs in this because of their tribe, because they're part of a certain tribe, the conservative tribe or the liberal tribe. We have an incredibly partisan society where there's such a there's such a uh, there's some people are just on one side. Some people are on the other side. And there's a lot of hostility. You know, there's the Trump supporters, there's the Biden supporters, there's the liberals, there's the conservatives. And it's very we're really at each other's throats or they are. And I think there's a lot of us versus them going on and a lot of this is my tribe. So this is what I'm supposed to believe. And when you see people who don't fit that mold, I think there's something there where it makes them reconsider, you know, the us versus them. And maybe there is something to this issue. I could be wrong, but I see that happening. And this this book seemed to back it up because it did discuss how a lot of people don't really engage with the with the arguments for and against abortion. They're not really they're not educated on abortion. They don't know fetal development. They don't know or they've never considered it in that way. And they believe it because it's part of the tribe they belong to. It's part of their identity. They don't believe it because they've carefully and critically examined the arguments for and against abortion and come to a decision after weighing the evidence. And I think that when you see they see people who do not fit the stereotype, it may make them break out of that a little bit. It was an interesting book. It was called Abortion Politics, and I suggest pro-lifers read it. It was not a pro-life book. I think the author is pro-choice, but it was still very um, interesting because it discussed the reasons why people hold a pro-choice belief. I think um, we're coming up about an hour now, and we have talked a lot about kind of um, uh, our frustrations probably with, uh, be, being kind of, uh, existing in two worlds at the same time, um, that are often hostile to each other and us being kind of the mediators between them sometimes. But, uh, I did want to, uh, ask about kind of more, uh, looking forward uh, what are some things that like we as LGBT pro-life people um, can really use our unique perspective to advocate for? I, I think um, one of the biggest things in my mind is increasing our use of inclusive language and inclusive services, because we had talked about before how um, Planned Parenthood is really in, in a lot of areas. It's the only place, not just um, for the the things that we don't like abortion or whatever. Um, it's also the only place around because a lot of the pregnancy centers are focused on pregnancy, whereas mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood will lots of times provide, um, other services as well. Hormone replacement prep, um, affirm, uh, gender affirmative, uh, pregnancy care, um, where acknowledging that, um, men, Men can also get pregnant. Have Men can children, also, yes. yeah, have children. Have children. Um, what? Yeah. What are some things that we can highlight, like the the specific needs of LGBT people around the issue of pregnancy and abortion, where uh, they're just not getting representation at all, or just uh, only getting representation and services from the pro-choice side, and that makes it a default for LGBT people. One thing I would absolutely love to see, and this would be wonderful, is pregnancy centers, pregnancy resource centers run by LGBT friendly, pro LGBT friendly and LGBT pro-lifers. This is a void. We have pregnancy centers, but many of them are religious, and that acts as a barrier to services towards LGBT people. Many of them are not open to providing hormone replacement therapy or open to working with LGBT people in an open way. They're, they have an agenda, not all pregnancy centers. Birthright is a little better with this. They're an organization that keeps religion off the table. But most of the crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers, as people call them now, are, are very religious. And that works as a big barrier against providing really inclusive and compassionate care to LGBT people. And it's not so much that they would treat an LGBT, people, LGBT person badly, although I'm sure some of them would, unfortunately, but they don't provide those services. And I really think a, a bunch of secular um, LGBT friendly pregnancy resource centers would be a wonderful thing. I think that would fill a tremendous void because there is that void there of, of providing these services. It's really sad that Planned Parenthood is the only group that provides hormone replacement. Well, they're not the only group, but they're one of the only groups that provide hormone replacement therapy. And if there were pro-life organizations that were willing to do that, willing to set themselves up, there's OBRIA, there's organizations that are medical, that, that are pregnancy resource centers that are medical, that provide whole women's care. We know that model works. 
we know the model works of having a pregnancy center that also is a medical center and provides mm-hmm. medical services. So I really feel that setting up some that are secular and that are LGBT friendly would be a wonderful thing. This is a huge area of need. Now, getting the funding for it would be difficult. There are not as many donors who would be willing to support it. Getting the people who are able in there to make such a gigantic commitment that it would require, you know, people have day jobs, they have to support themselves. Not everyone can can dedicate every moment of their day to setting up a, a pregnancy resource center. It's just not possible. But if we could find people who could and we could find the money, that would be a wonderful thing to do because that's a huge area of need. And I would love to see that happen personally. Yeah. And to be clear, when I, because I agree with us this, and I've said that before, that I, I want to, if I meet maybe someone who is pregnant um, and identifies as non-binary, or, mm. um, or even just is a lesbian, and you know, there something's going on. Um, people who are LGBT end up pregnant in all different types of ways. Um, I want to be confident when I refer them to a pregnancy center that one, that place is not going to promote or perform or refer for abortion. And two, that they're actually going to be able to help that person where they are. Luckily, I have worked uh, closely with my uh, local pregnancy centers. And I, you know, when I was a college student, I went to them um, a couple of times for STD testing and I brought friends to them. And, um, I have places that I feel confident sending people to. I don't think that's true in every area. Um, Mm. And I want to be clear when I talk about this and when I say, you know, I want to be able to know that you'll respect someone's pronouns, even if you disagree with um, maybe the ideology behind that in some way. Uh, I'm not saying I want to shut down a Christian pregnancy center. I want them to exist as well. I don't either. Yeah, those services are needed. Um, and you know, there are plenty of people who will say, no, I want to go to a Christian place um, because I am Christian or because like that, that's just who I want to support. And that's, that's, that's the one closest to me, whatever. Um, I, in general, when I talk about inclusion of um, LGBT people or secular people or liberal people or anything in the pro-life movement, very rarely do I actually want people to change their deeply held convictions or change how they see certain issues. I just want there to be a bigger tent. And so I want there Mm -hmm. to be, you know, another pregnancy resource center in town. Maybe this one provides barrier method contraception and this one provides other things that maybe the conservative Christian organizations don't want to support um, because more services is always going to be better and we can come together and work together as a coalition and say, listen, we disagree with some of these things. Um, You guys promote abstinence only. We're more neutral. We just want to help people uh, wherever Mm. they are. I'm not saying shut down the abstinence only place and make them make all the Christians hand out condoms. Uh, I want them all to, I want everyone to come together and say what services are needed in this area. What do we feel comfortable providing? um, And then go from there. And so I think that we are going to see that. I think we're going to see more resources um, from either more secular people or people who have different opinions than um, some of the more traditional pro-life groups, uh, whether they're religious or not, um, will be coming up because I'm seeing, you know, the young pro-life people who I know having the same issues with the current movement that I have had. um, And those people are dedicated to correcting those problems. So uh, this sounds like a uh, play gallery humanized collab project for the future uh, resource mapping of LGBT friendly uh, pregnancy centers and providing resources to them to uh, if they would like to get provide better care towards LGBT clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seriously, actually, guys, if any if any of you are listening to this um, and you are involved on the board of a pro life pregnancy center or uh, volunteer at one and want help uh, to want me to review how LGBT affirming or welcoming you might be. Email me, uh, contact Rehumanize or contact Playgal, um, because I would love to to help if you know you're interested in saying, "Am I welcoming?" If you know a lesbian couple or a transgender person walked into my center, would they feel like we can help them um, choose life? I want to be able to help you do that. Um, so seriously, email me and let's get the ball rolling. <laughs> and then when you pass, we'll just put our big rainbow stamp of approval. 
Yeah, I'll do that. I'll put the herb herb approves as this place is safe, safe space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Sarah, is there anything else that you would like to uh, bring up or plug or anything, any work that Playgal is doing that you want to uh, let us know about? Well, um, I don't really know of any projects we have going on now, but there's been a lot of talk of projects. So there may be, we may be doing webinars. That's one thing we may be doing. So if we do, I will make sure to let Rehumanize International know and promote them. Um, we have been talking for a while about doing some kind of research. And this is something we could maybe collaborate with you on, like, as you just said, to see what resources there are for LGBT pregnant um, young people to, you know, for in terms of crisis pregnancy centers to see if there are any LGBT friendly ones and like where the need is most is most um, pressing. Um, and I, I want to end mostly by saying, though, that I believe there's tremendous hope, though, for the pro-life movement. And this is a bit of a, of a subject change. But I think that these young people coming up who are much more inclusive, but still very dedicated to protecting the preborn, I believe there will be more and more spaces that open up for LGBT pro-lifers. And I believe there will be more unity. I already see tremendous changes happening in the last 20 years especially the last 30 years. I see things very different. I'm older than you. I'm in my 40s. I'm actually on the downside of 40, unfortunately. But I've been involved in the pro-life movement since I was in my teens. And I have seen tremendous changes and I've seen them moving in the right direction. And I believe that will continue. So I think there's tremendous hope for a better, more inclusive pro-life movement. And I also believe a pro-life movement that reaches out to more people and is more um, persuasive to more people. Um, which, which is not locked in a conservative bubble where, you know, there's there's it's difficult to reach other LGBT people from that place. I believe there will be more people becoming involved in the pro-life movement because they will see that there is a place for them there. And they will see that they're that not everyone that there are people who understand where they're coming from and are still pro-life. So I see tremendous hope for the future. I completely agree. Um, and I think that I will tell the listeners if you want to help get involved to make that future a reality, you should contact Playgal and you should follow Playgal um, on social media. They're just like at Playgal, I think P-L-A-G-A-L, Pro-Life Alliance of Gays and Lesbians um, on social media. Follow them, get on their email list, website playgal.org. Um, yeah, stay involved in the projects. I'm sure. Hopefully, I think I think I'm I believe COVID is over now and that <laughs> there will be a March for Life next year. Hopefully, um, well, hopefully Roe v. Wade will be overturned and we won't need to mark life anymore, but it's not over, but but I'm sure things are going to be open anyways. Yeah. COVID is not over. It's still serious. Wear your mask. If you're somewhere where you need to be wearing a mask, like public transportation or something like that, but, um, be safe out there. COVID is real. Yeah, especially for immunocompromised people like me. So protect us. We're a mask. Protect immunocompromised people. But I think that outside events like the March for Life are becoming more plausible and more safe, Mm. um, hopefully at least by January 2022, if we still need to March for Life in January 2022. So thank you, Sarah, for coming on. Uh, Anything else you want to plug real quick? No, I just think it's it is a good idea to contact Playgal and to follow us on social media. Um, Certainly, the more people we have involved, the better. And um, you know, we're always looking for people to help out with projects and things. So um, certainly follow us and and contact us. Perfect. Thank you so much. This has been the Rehumanized Podcast. episode the conversation that we had about like people just kind of going to the default um held a lot of uh, significance for me because like what i when i was starting to get like politically active when i was like i don't know junior high age like that was the default for me was be pro-choice because like you're a socialist because you're progressive um so that was just like Sarah said, that wasn't something that I like considered very deeply. It was just like, this is, you know, on the list of things that I'm supposed to support. Um, so I do have a lot of hope that because of LGBT people's experience with discrimination, um, and dehumanization that those of us who are in both the LGBT movement and in also in the pro-life movement are able to provide that bridge, um, 
against kind of that uh, common narrative that assumes that you have to be pro-choice for LGBT. And I mean, another thing I will say is that there are these more more serious and negative aspects of existing in these two spaces um, and knowing that you are kind of pushing against the mainstream zeitgeist of the different movements and different communities that we're a part of. Uh, but there is also a lot of joy, you know, there is, it is still fun to hang out at, you know, the rehumanized karaoke party when half the people there are playgirl members. Um, and it's not always, it's not always sad times. There's, there's a lot of fun. People have fun at the rehumanized conference, um, and all the playgirl events that they sponsor. So yeah, that's all. Uh, the one thing that I am mad at Sarah about, because I was trying to, at the very end of when I we were closing out the episode, I was trying to bully her into plugging Playgal stuff and her own stuff, and she just refused because she didn't want to do self-promotion. Uh, but then when we stopped recording, she was like, by the way, so you guys know I have this thing coming out. Sarah now has a uh, an email list, a subscribe page uh, that you can follow her work on because Sarah is an excellent writer. If you have read any of her uh, live action or Consistent Life Network or Rehumanized posts um, and articles, and she now is working on releasing some books. So you should follow her email list so that you can be... Uh, aware of when those are coming out and they are upcoming very soon you can find that at subscribepage.com slash sarah terzo follow her there get involved we'll uh, put that in the description um, of this episode and yeah stay involved in sarah's work and in play gal's work and obviously in rehumanizes work but if you already listen to the podcast i don't think i have to plug that thank you again for listening i think i feel like i sign off and on every time we have a break in between like the beginning part and then the yeah. and then the end and i just i just love signing on and off so i'm gonna do it yet again this has been the rehumanized podcast this is herb and this is emiliano goodbye peace and solidarity okay.